when it happens, the first thing is it's a shock. It's dislocating. A lot of your certainties are taken away. You're sort of walking a little bit on quicksand. And there's a huge amount of fear. There's also an amount of shame that comes as well. You know, there's a lot of guilt. What have I done wrong? There's a lot of soul searching. And you think about the stakeholders in your own life. You know, a young daughter. How am I going to support her? How am I going to pay the mortgage? All of these things naturally go on. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald and your host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and you're very welcome back to The Card Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mark Cahalan. And this is on the back of an excellent piece which Mark wrote about redundancy. And obviously there's been lots of stuff in the news about tech layoffs, et cetera, over the last few months. But this piece really resonated for me because it was called Fired, Fearful and 50. And in the work that I do around career transition and what we do in harmonics, We come across people who are exiting corporate organizations and having to start a new life at a time when maybe it wasn't of their choosing. And uh, Mark has written a really brave piece and come out in the open and spoke about how he was experiencing that journey for himself. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, John. Mark, we always start the podcast with this question around asking our guests about telling us about your formative years, early influences and values that you believe shaped who you are today. I grew up in Dublin, although a very strong heritage and link, which both my parents had with Cork, particularly West Cork, which has always been a constant presence and a shaping influence on my life and the life of my uh, brothers and sisters. I was the youngest of a very large family, the youngest of nine children. My eldest brother, unfortunately, died, but I, the youngest of nine. Very busy household, a very loving household. My dad was a consultant paediatric pathologist. He um, was very involved in Temple Street Hospital, dedicated most of his life to it. He introduced the um, heel prick test to Ireland, which is a test which all children are, are screened through the National Screening Laboratory, which my dad set up and had to actively lobby the then Minister for Health, Charles Sawhey, to fund it who eventually said, give the man the damn money, and he set up the National Screening Laboratory. My mum was also very involved in fundraising for Temple Street as well. There was a very strong feeling of social justice in in the family, surrounded by books, which were, and words, which shaped my life as well. I discovered at an early age, or my dad discovered probably from being a doctor, I was dyslexic, which had a really strong influence on my life. And I would say not because of it or in spite of it, but I mean, it, it is part of who I am. And anybody who has dyslexia, will know this, that you think a particular way and you you solve problems in a particular way. And I suppose it pivoted me towards words and a strong affinity towards words. And words really became something that I loved. And as I said, I was surrounded by books and I was really interested. One day I stopped and said, what are these things? And started reading them. And I continue to read. I read 10 pages of a book every morning. It's a practice I have. And that comes from my early childhood. I was also an observer, being the youngest of a very large family. I kind of stood back and observed what was going on around me. And that was something that was going to stand uh, to me for the rest of my life in that standing back, observing, listening are key to what I do now. So, you know, as I look back now, those attributes have stayed with me all of my life. 
Fantastic. And words and observation obviously played a strong part in the piece that you've written, which we'll come to later. And then moving on from there, talk to us about your corporate career and what you went on to after school and college. Yeah, I think um, very much because of what I talked about in the formative years, I continued that interest in words and the written word and the spoken word, not deliberately, more accidentally. And the three major roles I've had in my life beyond this one now where I work for myself, I've been recruited into. I didn't positively seek them out. But when I look back now, there was a logic to it. And it was in communications consultancy. So starting in Ireland with a great company called uh, Drury Communications, I think it's Drury now got to work with great corporate leaders in Ireland and really the titans of industry. And I was very privileged and to be a privileged participant or a privileged observer on how they formulated their strategy, how they communicated, how they engaged with stakeholders, and, you know, really superb leaders and superb clients like so Paddy Power Bookmakers, which was I worked with them from the early days right up to the flotation, Aer Lingus, CRH, who I went on to work with and spent eight years with was one of my founding clients as well. Moved on from that, I was recruited into Edelman in Ireland, another communications agency. I walked in the door at a relatively young age, at the age of 27, as managing director. Had never been in the company before. Interestingly, we didn't know this, but there was a number of financial challenges in the business. I learned there very quickly of the need to have good people around you, a good team. And we've developed a superb business there. And I think, you know, it still is a superb business. And we attracted or worked with great clients, great Irish businesses. The leadership of Ryanair was a great win pitching for that business with Michael O'Leary as the only listener was something I will remember for the rest of my life. Musgrave, another great Irish business and lots of consumer clients as well. And really with a great team of people turned that business around and it is a thriving business today. And then finally, after that, moved on and was recruited. You know, one of my favorite words is serendipity. And I think it was totally serendipitous that I ended up working with one of my first clients, which was CRH. I was actually in the process of interviewing for a global role uh, to be the, the chief executive of global communications consultancy, because I had gone on in Edelman to work internationally uh, across Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I was now being looked at for a global role. And that search agency was running a search for CRH and they asked me, this was in London, they asked me what I knew about it and they discovered I knew quite a lot about it. And then also I was somebody I knew in another agency, Rory Godson introduced me to them as well. So it was totally serendipitous that I got the opportunity to have a front seat at one of Ireland's great companies, which was a different scale and a different level uh, completely. So as I say, John, I don't know the, there was a design. I was recruited into these roles. I didn't actively seek them but I had a, probably a sense of what I didn't want. And I followed that. So that's broadly my career path. It's interesting, the serendipity there in a piece of research, which was done on the chaos theory of careers. The research showed that 70% of people end up where they are in life yeah. through chance meetings. And obviously you're bringing it to life there. So it's something that isn't to be discounted when we're in career transition and making changes. So that obviously led to CRH then and a corporate role, global responsibility. Must have been a huge undertaking, the work that you were doing there with a big, really successful Irish organisation. Yeah, I mean, the, the change and the shift required was just enormous and no, nothing could have prepared me for it because it is such a huge, complex organization, highly, you know, ambiguous organization as all of these organizations are. There's lots of complexity. There's lots of markets. It was a huge step change. As I look back now, 
I think, wow, you know, how was I there for seven years? Because I had a front seat on the decision making and often was part of the decision making of this enormous enterprise with then 90,000 people, revenues of around 29 billion and had just made its most significant acquisitions of around 12 billion and bringing 27,000 people into the business, which I was centrally involved in. We were bringing 27,000 people into the business is no easy task. There was no roadmap of how to do it, but I was surrounded by brilliant, committed people. And it was very interesting as we did that work and began to tell the story of the chief executive who I reported into was changing the overall strategy of the business anyway. In its name, its original name, Cement Rollstone Holdings, it was a very federalist, distant company from operating companies. He had a very different approach in terms of the strategy and value creation, which was getting much closer to those businesses and understanding the central value of the group and bringing those 27,000 people in. We quickly realized, okay, we're telling these 27,000 people all about the business. But there's a lot of other people in the business who know nothing about the business either because of that original strategy. So we have to bring ultimately 90,000 people and align them to the corporate strategy, the value creation thesis of the business, which had changed and shifted. There was a lot of challenges in that. It was really, really interesting work. And it wasn't just about the internal audience. It was also looking out into a very complex stakeholder landscape in terms of why would people invest in CRH and really got the opportunity to work with incredibly smart, incredibly dedicated people. When I think about it, I think about, you know, they were and are true corporate athletes. And when you step into a huge role like that with lots of complexity, what are the key skills and attributes you need when there's lots of people who will work in leadership transitions when they move up into a role where there's just so much complexity and so much stuff coming at them? What do you believe are really critical for leaders to understand and know when they step into a role like that? I think you need high degrees of resilience. I think you need a good measure of common sense. I sat there for probably a month, maybe a little. I I don't think I was allowed to sit there for a month, but I realized quite quickly, Jesus, no one's going to tell me what to do. You know, (laughs) I have to do something. So I think uh, resilience is really important. Building your network in a large, complex organization is critically important. Looking for quick wins as well in terms of what are the things we can change. When I started off, there was a significant challenge. And because of the structure of the business, which naturally had followed the strategy, it wasn't possible to to talk to the entire organization. That just didn't happen. So part of what I had to do was introduce the organization to itself, along with other very able people, as I say. So I think, you know, being able to stand back being able to see what are the core challenges you're facing, where can you really add value, where can you make a difference? And it was quite, it was very challenging, I would imagine, to work for an organization and not really know what it valued and wanted. And that was one of the key challenges of the organization, which I was brought in to help solve, which was to help introduce a business of enormous complexity, simplify that business and help all the business. You know, there was an onus on the leadership and us as part of the leadership to help explain that to the people who were dedicating their lives to it. So I would say perspective, stand back, build your network and understand what your role is. There's a lot of contracting, John, you know, to be sure that you are focusing on the right areas and that you are adding value from the short term and to the long term. Yeah, some great advice there for anybody stepping into a role that's beyond what they might have experienced before. 
And then the end of the road comes, and this is the topic of our conversation, which is fired 50 and fearful. And as best you can, can you describe the backdrop to this happening to you? It's a very unpleasant experience, John. It's a necessary experience at times. Businesses have to make decisions, rolling functions together, changing functions, integrating, etc. So, you know, it's a very challenging experience. But I look back at it with a little bit of humour because it's happened to me twice. And I'm always reminded of Oscar Wilde in The Importance of Being Earnest, where it was Lady Bracknell who said, you know, to lose one parent is unfortunate, to lose two is careless. And I can look back at it now with a little bit of humour. It's happened to me twice. Was that about me or does it show the the fickleness of corporate life? I hope it's the latter. To be honest, I was ready to leave anyway. My job was done. So it was, again, probably serendipitous for me. But when it happens, actually, the second time it happened to me was really interesting. You sort of have a sixth sense about these things. I happened to be bizarrely walking behind the coffin of my elderly uncle, who was a missionary priest in Japan, and he was a Columban father. And he was in Dalgan Park in County Mead, which is absolutely beautiful. I was walking behind his hearse. And my phone beeped, for some bizarre reason, I took it out and I was called to, I did, there was a meeting. And the meeting just, it was a couple of weeks away, but I thought, that's odd. I was coming to an end naturally anyway. So when it happens, the first thing is, it's a shock. It's dislocating. A lot of your certainties are taken away. You're sort of walking a little bit on quicksand. And there's a huge amount of fear. There's also an amount of shame that comes as well. You know, there's a lot of guilt. What have I done wrong? Uh, there's a lot of soul searching. And you think about the stakeholders in your own life, you know, a young daughter, how am I going to support her? How am I going to pay the mortgage? All of these things naturally go on. I remember walking out and thinking, well, I'm not going to be back here again. And that's a big thing, you know, because you've dedicated a lot of your life to an organization. And for whatever reasons, that has come to an end. So there's a degree of sadness, you know, it's the end of a relationship. But in time, your perspective changes. The reason I wrote that piece and, you know, was it brave or not? I just look now and I realize there's a lot of this happening to other people and it's particularly happening to young people. I have a perspective on it. I wasn't particularly looking for any attention. I just thought, well, look, if I can help here from my Lady Bracknell experience, as I call it, maybe there's some advice. And it's interesting, you know, out of adversity, I've written adverse circumstances, two pieces on LinkedIn, which have attracted huge attention. And I sometimes wonder about that one was, I was one of the early sufferers of COVID and one of the first 50 people into ICU in the country. And I wrote about that and that got a huge response. And then I, you know, I wrote about it because I knew there were a lot of people afraid about it. Similarly, now I know about this redundancy, that there's a lot of people afraid of it. And I thought, well, there's maybe eight or nine things I've learned from that experience. And I wrote about them. I talked about the need to grieve. There is a grieving process you have to go through. It is the end of a relationship. I talked about the need to respond and not react because a lot of times the impulse is, geez, I need to replace like, I need to get back in there immediately. And that's reacting. And that tension, where does that come from, Mark? Because I meet that a lot when I'm working with people is this got to get back in the horse straight away. From your perspective, where is that coming from? The tension to follow like with like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's human nature, John. You're running your life on autopilot. You have certainties in your life. You have money coming in. You have security. You have stability. And suddenly that's taken away. I mean, it's fear. Of course, it's fear. It's a visceral reaction and it's fear based. 
And that's exactly where it comes from. It is a most unpleasant experience, you know. So, of course, there's going to be tension in it. Yeah. And other stuff you mentioned there around adversity. And I suppose this leads to the point you were making about the inner voice. And talk to me about that. Interestingly, I used to work with a coach who died two years ago, a lady called Betty uh, Cosgrave. And Betty Cosgrave wrote a beautiful book called The Whispering Soul. And we all have a whispering soul, that inner voice, which is full of wisdom, but sometimes we're just so busy that we don't hear it. I always knew, I said in my redundancies, when I had gone through the transformation and building those businesses, I knew my time was up and I was actually done in many ways, which sounds odd because they were really, really interesting businesses. I was bored because I knew there was something else I wanted to do. And I always knew there was something else, but I pushed that voice away. And I suppose when this happens, if you are fortunate enough, and I was fortunate enough, given that I got a package when I was leaving, I had some time to pause and I had some time to evaluate who I had become and what was really important to me now. I had come through eight really intense, fantastic years, but they were very intense. The, the pressure is enormous. You know, I understand the pressure that chief executives face because I've seen it at, at, one, seat at the, one of the largest businesses in the world. I needed time to think about who was I, what was the priority in my life now, and what did I want to do? And a core decision came to me, John, is I didn't want to hand my destiny over to somebody else ever again. No matter how reasonable the decision is, I wanted authorship and ownership of my life. So I knew I had to do something else because I was offered really, really tempting roles and really tempting roles. And you and I discussed them, you know, where I was like, Jesus, this is big, you know, and even bigger than the role I did. And I decided, look, because there is an inner compass and it was time for me to let that inner compass swing to true north. And that's what I did. And that meant turning down, and I still think about it, an enormous job with huge money for complete uncertainty. But that's who I am. And, and we all have that. And ultimately, we're all going to have to evaluate our lives at some stage. I got the opportunity to evaluate my life in my late 40s and to think, you know, a lot of your early life is about the outer dimension and securing incomes, getting your home, your family, all of those things. But the second half for me is very much about the inner dimension. And really, it was time for me to be the person I'd wanted to be. I'd been busily sculpting my life in a particular direction with this sort of nebulous future out there that I thought I might have one of these, what are they called, portfolio careers. I never liked that term. But there were things I was really interested in, and it was time to pursue those. I also have a very young daughter, Sophie, and I used to phone Sophie, and Sophie was getting out of bed, and it was, well, where are you now, Dad? And before she was out of bed, I had left the home at 3 a.m., and I was in a different country. I think it's Edmund Burke. It's just said it's left to God and the angels to be lookers-on. I did not want to be a looker-on in my daughter's life. It is the most important relationship of my life, and I wanted to be there. So that was also very guiding in the decision I made. So a confluence of circumstances. I can't pretend it's all plain sailing. It hasn't been. There's a lot of fear. You know that. When I've, you know you and I have had the phone, and I've gone, Jesus, why did I turn down that job? I've done that many, many times. And I'm sure I will many more times. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge. The overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, 
go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And I mentioned the bravery of writing the article, but the bravery of turning down the big job. And I meet so many people in transition where it seems like that they're afraid to, I suppose, recognize that inner voice and have the resilience to carry through with what's really important in life. And what you described there, so many people, I remember working with one person, you know, they were heading on a a red eye on a Monday morning out of Dublin and coming back on a Thursday night. They just didn't have any connection with their three teenage kids as a result of corporate life. And these are the real big rocks that we need in our life around us. And corporate life seems to have, you know, made us recognize that, oh, well, other stuff is important rather than the really big stuff in our life. And you've obviously worked with lots of people who are on that corporate treadmill and maybe had conversations with them like I have and would love to do and have the authorship that you have about your career, even though there's insecurity. Have you any insights on that, on other people going through that journey? I couldn't do what I do without the personal experience. You know, I couldn't do it without the great successes. I couldn't do it without the setbacks. Um, I couldn't do it without the failures. You know, life happens and your experience makes you who you are. And you have an opportunity to take that learning and do something positive with it. For me, yes, I do meet a lot of those people and I am privileged to have been a participant in a moment in the evolution of an enormous business where I got a front seat. I was on the leadership team and worked with some of the smartest people I will ever work in my life. That informs the work I do, obviously, and is attractive to the people who want to work with me. I've also faced, like many other people, great adversity and you move on from it. That informs the work I do as well. And I've also listened to myself and I've learned how to stop. Um, you know, that great, there is, as you know, this in, you know, man's search for meaning between stimulus and reaction, there is choice. And you used to have that on your, and maybe you still do on your email sign off, you know, between the inhale and the exhale, there's always that pause. And that's such a rich, rich space. And the people I work with, it's a combination of learned experience. It's a combination of academic experience. But there's a huge emotional element to it. I'm really interested in authenticity and authentic leadership. And I meet a lot of people who are afraid in many, many ways for so many reasons to stand into themselves and to take full authorship and ownership of themselves and to communicate from a highly authentic place. You know, what is empathy? It's the ability to understand somebody else's experience. But standing beyond that is compassion and the ability and the motivation to do something about it is something fundamentally different. As I look at businesses now, you see the great, you know, the evolution of business thinking. And I read a lot, as I say, if you think about back to Milton Friedman, his thinking was, what is the purpose of business? It's to make money. Then that moved on to purpose and purpose is talked about a hell of a lot and very much in vogue at the moment. But as I think about it now, the people I work with is there's so much uncertainty. There's so much dislocation and flux in people's lives. There's an opportunity for leaders to do something quite different. To me, it might sound a bit odd. It's another P. It's almost pastoral um, because people need 
certainty in their lives as much as they can have it. They need a sense of something bigger than themselves. They need a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's really important in the arsenal of an authentic leader, their ability to listen, their ability to relate, their ability to take complexity and simplify it, and their ability to be vulnerable and on full view. These are critically important things, I think, for anybody who wants to lead a large or small organization and engender a, a contract based on trust or any sort of followership. I couldn't talk about these things or work with people on these things from their business strategy to their communication strategy or their leadership dynamics of their leadership team with that the personal experience and the, the privileged front seat experience I've had in, with major industries, not just as an employee. You know, I've discovered as well, I'm much better working on businesses than in businesses. And that's a big difference. I have a low boredom threshold. I've learned that about myself. And um, I love the privilege of the partnership of what I do now. And it is an utter privilege to help people to pause, to see themselves, to see their strengths, their weaknesses, to give them a safe space and leadership. You know, it's such a lonely place. It really is. It's extraordinary. And I, I've worked with some great, great leaders. And the thing they need most of all is a secure space in which they can be authentically vulnerable and talk about the challenges they face, where they can almost exhale and say, this is what's going on for me. And to hold that space for them, to have some advice, to have some insights, to have some valuable questions, I think is invaluable. And you bring up something there about, you know, all of the skills that you need as a leader in the world of work. But one of the things that you wrote about in your piece was standing on your own two feet and the corporate identity is gone and your calls are no longer going to be automatically returned. And I see that time and time again when I'm working with corporate executives through change. And for you, you know, the skills that you learned to be in a leadership role in a corporate versus what you require to stand on your own two feet and start your own proposition as a business is very different. And can you explain that? Because I have this visual sometimes when people um, go through this, that it's almost like that they're stripped naked and on their own out in the middle of a field. And they're looking around and saying, my God, you know, I don't have the protection. I don't have the executive assistant. I don't have all of the resources that I had in my corporate life. Now that I'm out here and I have to be Mark Cahillan or John Fitzgerald setting out into the world, you have to set up a new identity and brand. And you're obviously great in the whole corporate communications and branding. So maybe any advice you can give to people around that experience of what that was like for you and how they can transition from one to the other. It's a pretty humbling experience. This is the business. You know, this is it. Um, this is the marketing department. This is business development. This is sales. This is customer service. And um, the laptop is the IT department and the mobile phone, uh, which no longer gets replaced every 10 minutes, is part of the IT department. So it is a very humbling and exposing experience. You learn a lot about yourself. For me, there's another great book I read, which is Quiet, which is about introverts and extroverts. And, and I think I'm somewhere as an omnivert. But networking and being out there is not something that would have come naturally to me. You know, as a director of corporate affairs in large organizations, my role was to observe, to advise, but also, you know, sometimes a hidden, you know, a hidden observer because you're not looking for 
necessarily publicity for yourself. You're advising the chief executive on very complex issues and you're seeing the organization through your eyes and helping them see it through their eyes. So yeah, it's a pretty exposing experience, John, and you have to change your stance. For me, that was something that I was probably one of the biggest challenges was the need to do things like I am doing now with you in this moment, which was to raise my profile. So, you know, you're asking, what's my advice? Well, you know, when you've operated in businesses and high businesses, you are somewhat of a corporate athlete yourself. You have innate skills, you have innate capabilities. Yes, you have a huge organization behind you. But when you do an audit of, you know, what am I good at? Uh, what is my experience? You'll be surprised, you know, about what you have. I'm working in the smallest business I've ever worked in in my life right now. But interestingly, I'm growing into it. I've done huge roles, but I'm growing into this role. And in many ways, it's the most challenging, challenging role. But I do know, and I was able to take stock of, well, what are the strengths I have? I did that and I looked at, well, okay, it's one thing having my strengths and my experience. Where are my deficiencies? What do I have to do about that? What training do I need? Uh, and I did a certain amount of training. But also really importantly, I looked and thought, well, what's the demand? You know, what's the need for, you know, late 40s executive who's now out in his own? What need is out there? What need can I meet? So I think, you know, to summarize, what am I saying? You have enormous capabilities if you could come out of large corporate roles or, or any role. Do an audit of what your capabilities are, understand your capabilities, and assess the market you're addressing and what its need is, and then begin to communicate based on other people's needs, not your skills. Yeah. And, you know, I set up Harmonics in 2006, and I still go through those moments of uncertainty in relation to Where's the next sale coming from when you're in consultancy? And that insecurity of the peaks and troughs of consultancy, can you bring that to light for people who are starting out there and share your experience? I talk now, you know, my life used to be organized for me. I had, you know, a great team of people. I was told where I needed to be. It was organized for me to go wherever I needed to go. Now I spend a lot of time talking to small businesses and small business leaders and people trying to scale their businesses and all the challenges they have. And it's been a really interesting experience. And there seems to be, the more I talk to some cycle that in terms of establishing your business, first of all, there is that huge amount of fear because you are out on your own and you're going, okay, well, how do I generate one phone call? How do I generate somebody who wants something from me? How do I get recognized? There's all of these things going on for you. And it seems to be cyclical in that the first year for me, I went, well, what's that all about? Why didn't I do this years ago? It was really easy. You know, I remember you telling me, get some great recurring income and to get some contracts where you do ongoing revenue. And I did get them, but they all came to an end roughly the same time because I'd done everything I was capable of doing. I'm not a false salesman. No, I sort of said, we've done it now. There's nothing more. And um, in my capability, you need this lab. So those retainers was the word I was looking for, came to an end. And then in year two, I was like, oh dear, um, there's a very big learning here, which was I was really busy servicing the business, but now I have no pipeline. Um, so year two uh, was incredibly challenging. And I understand for most people I talk to that that is often the case, that year two is a really difficult year and a different year. And it was such a different year that for me, it was, am I going to continue? Am I going to be able to pay the mortgage? Am I going back to full-time employment? 
And you have some soul searching where you are really looking at yourself and thinking, can I do this? They're the times when you need great people around you. If it's great support, and that's advice I would really give. And you do move on from that, you know, and things do change. There is hope. And there are different worries in this. But for me, it is fantastic working for yourself. It is liberating. It's really interesting. I've moved on from that year two. I've moved on from that year one. I've learned from it. I got great people around me to help. And I think that's something really, really important that you need your fan club. And there are people who are realistic, who know you, uh, will challenge you, but will also encourage you and won't give you false hope. And there were some people who were really instrumental in that for me. So I don't know yeah. if that's advice, John, but it's experience. And I see it, I suppose, and we had these conversations when you were going through the coaching with myself, where some people go into consultancy and it's kind of half-hearted. I'll do it for a while and see how it works out. But I think commitment is a huge word around that. If you want to go into working for yourself, you've got to have no plan B. You can't allow that other job to come on your radar because almost, again, the universe gives you back what you set out. And I believe you have to have 100% focus on saying, I'm going to create the best niche area that I want to focus on. And I was reading something the other night where, you know, we're now moving from the era of average to the era of excellence. And it was somebody I'm going to have on the podcast. They were making the point about, you know, the design of branding that they need to do into their products. They know now that the barriers to entry for big corporates are not what they were before. And that startup can take stuff out. And you see that in the coaching and consulting practice as well. We're having to compete with technology like never before. And we need to work with technology. So I just think that that's such an important point that for people starting out there, to have a commitment to their next step. And for you, your next step, just briefly describe, Mark, your core proposition. This is uh, maybe a platform to just speak briefly about that. I will, John, but if I could just go back for one second, but as I listened to you, I had a huge hesitancy stepping into this. And you know that I didn't even want to change my LinkedIn profile in case, you know, recruiters didn't yeah. come to me. So there's these tiny little steps you have to take. And they're quite big steps when you've come from a particular environment and you and others encouraged me. And ultimately, you have to make a decision. You have to step into this and fully own it. That took me a while. My LinkedIn profile has changed, as you can see. And I speak very transparently on LinkedIn and through other mediums as well. But I couldn't do that now um, if I hadn't made those steps and I hadn't stepped in and owned it completely. And that was a challenge and it was a learning. And it's really, really important. And you know you're in this space when you're no longer looking at recruitment ads. You know, you're not distracted by, you know, other major corporate roles. And my proposition now is is really it's an amalgamation of what I've always done. So I think either subconsciously or consciously through the latter half of my corporate career, I was designing something and it was kind of a three-legged stool. Communications, stakeholder engagement being one part of it and authentic communications and the complexity that businesses need to connect or the challenge that businesses have in authentically engaging with their stakeholders and telling their story and the power of good storytellings and simple, clear messages. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is executive coaching, which I do with harmonics and I've become really interested in team coaching as well and do a lot of work in team coaching. And that's fascinating, you know, the dynamics between people and getting the between leadership teams and getting that dynamic right. The, you know, it is the difference between average performance and high value performance is that 
the human dynamics. And it's really interesting when you go into a team and you ask the question, what can this team not talk about? Because that surfaces so much about that dynamic between people and businesses ultimately by people and working relationships. And the third part of that stool is something which I've always been interested in. I, I did a master's and qualified a number of years ago as a mediator, which is where the relationships go wrong and become a block to high performance. So how can you restore that? And running through all of that is strategic counsel to business teams, helping on strategy and a number of other areas, facilitation and things like that. Really interesting work. I work with some very large organizations. I work with some small organizations scaling. Um, it's diverse and it's very, very fulfilling. And it's ultimately what I always wanted to do. Excellent, Mark. We could talk for ages. I need to wrap this up because we both have meetings to go to. A couple of quick fire questions. You love words. So you've mentioned a number of books on the interview. So a book you'd most recommend. Yeah, books are my friends, John. I read 10 pages every day. If I looked to my right now, I have the CEO whisper, good morning, I love you. I've never split the difference. I've influenced um, lots of different books. There's a book called Team of Rivals, which is about Abraham Lincoln. And it is the most fabulous book I've ever read because he was an inspirational leader. He was a man who had many, many setbacks in his life and was humble despite the greatness he achieved. It is a fantastic book, and it is about the diversity fundamentally of the team he forced, where he, you know, his direct competitors, he brought them in and made them part of his team. It's a fantastic book. You shared great advice on your piece. What's the best life or career advice you've ever been given? There's lots of different advice, John. You know, I could continue on with Oscar Wilde and, you know, say, be yourself. Everything else is taken. And that really means, you know, be authentic. I have here on my desk, I could read it very briefly, and it's something my mum gave me shortly before she died. She died when I was 22. It's an evolution of something written by Ullman, and it is, nobody grows old by merely living a number of years. People grow old by deserting their ideals. You are as young as your self-confidence, as old as your fears, as young as your hope, as old as your despair. And that's a little creed that I follow, and it sits there framed on my desk. Brilliant. And lastly, the one person that motivates and inspires you. Of all the questions you've asked me, John, that's the easiest one to answer. My chief shareholder, my daughter, Sophie, who is eight, who always reminds me to have fun, who has a great sense of the ridiculous, who makes me laugh uncontrollably. And we just have a super time. And I see the world through her eyes. And it is a world of possibility and a world of wonder. We both have a love affair with our daughters. A great way to finish the podcast. This was about listening to your experience of your career journey. I think it's been fabulous insight into the journey you've traveled and to, to finish on a line from your own piece that you wrote. To those of you who see redundancy at the end of the road at 50 or any stage, may I humbly suggest that it's not. It's possible to become vital and purposeful again. It's also possible to become a better version of yourself. I think that sums up you, Mark, and your authenticity and uh, the way that you come across to people. And I wish you the very best of success in the future. Thanks for joining me on the podcast this morning, Mark. Thanks very much, John. It was a privilege to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.